the reason that I wanted to do this is that I find business books can be a little bit pedantic at times and memoirs are wonderful, but I'm often left with like, what do I do now? And so I wanted to do something where you could have the benefits of both. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. I've written a book a memoir that starts with my challenging upbringing with all the twists and turns and inflection points, including saving my company due to the pandemic. It will be published this year. So please go to natashamiller.co and sign up on my mailing list so you're the first to know when it's available. In this episode of Fascinating Entrepreneurs, we talk to New York Times bestselling author of eight books, Anna David. She has written for the New York Times, appeared on the Today Show, and is also a TEDx speaker. Anna transforms entrepreneurial thought leaders into best-selling authors so they can attract higher quality clients, become go-to media sources, land speaking gigs, and grow into being the leaders in their field. Her new book, Make Your Mess Your Memoir, is part of a new genre she coined a term for, bizwar. We get the inside scoop on her journey to entrepreneurship, becoming a writer, and helping others tell their story. What was your journey to entrepreneurship? Well, it was thrust upon me because I have been fired from every job I've ever had. And if you would like to eat and pay your mortgage and you're fired from every job you've ever had, you have no option but to be an entrepreneur or I guess to marry an heir to a fortune, which wasn't presenting itself and wouldn't have really fit me. So I basically tried all of these things. The last things I was trying before I started my company was creating websites and selling them. And I was successful in doing that, but I still had a boss because I sold my website to a person who ended up firing me in more in like a, he couldn't afford me anymore kind of a way. And one of my team members would do it for half the price. So I ended up starting this company because people were coming to me and basically banging down my door, asking me to do this thing and offering to pay me a lot of money for it. And I was so unwilling, unable to see it that I didn't see that this whole time I was scrambling for pennies and trying so hard to set up other businesses that there was a business right in front of me. And finally, I woke up to that and here we are. And so tell us about the business and when did it start? It's called Launchpad Publishing and we write and publish books for entrepreneurs and thought leaders. And it started in 2017 with this person, basically because one of my books was New York Times bestseller, I've had lots of people come to me wanting me to write their books. And I always say no. And it's how I still feel that I would not write someone else's book again. And most people just go away when you say that. This person didn't go away. He just kept insisting and insisting. And when I continued to say no, he said, well, what about if you just edit the book? So I had a girl I knew who had been coming to me telling me she needed work and she was a writer. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I could ask her to write it. And so 
that was the book. And then that book launched this guy's whole career. And he already had a big career. He's a sports agent for huge athletes. But he then became, you know, he launched this whole speaking career and spokesperson thing. And so I counted from starting then, but I didn't have another client for probably another year because I didn't understand that I had a business. And had you self-published or professionally published versus traditional publishing at that time? I had in a not organized or clear way, mostly in an experimental way. I would say like, oh, let's see what happens. I'll put together an anthology and that's something I can do in a couple of weeks. And so I did that. I put together an anthology and I published it on Amazon and I sort of figured that out. I tried it with a couple different things. And most of them I've now taken out words the wise, you can't actually delete from Amazon. Yeah, you can make your book, you can have it go back to draft form, but it will always show as available, not ideal. So be real clear that this is the one you want there because they're the world's largest bookstore and they want to show that anything that's ever existed. That is incredible right there, that piece that nugget of wisdom that I think pretty much anyone would assume would not be so. That's important because you don't want to put yourself out there in a way that you regret later because there's no really erasing it. It's ironic because books go out of print before Amazon existed. The most tragic thing that could happen is that your book would go out of print. So I had played around with it, but I hadn't done it. And in fact, this client, Darren, who had my team write this book, said, now I want you to publish it. And I said, I have no idea how to do that because even though I'd done it, I really didn't know. And he said, no problem. I will pay you to figure it out. And so that's what he did. And I figured it out. It's really complicated to do it right. So I quickly got a team together so they could do that part because I'm not good at that part. So let's go back to when you were publishing traditionally. I know that a lot of authors and a lot of entrepreneurs and thought leaders because I know this is how I felt as well, are just so beholden to the possibility of getting a large publisher book deal, a traditional book deal. And so I want to ask the question first, that how did you approach getting an agent in a traditional publishing deal? Then we'll go down the road a little further once you've answered that question. Well, I was in an entirely different situation because I was a very established writer. I was writing for the New York Times. I was writing for Cosmo and Teen Vogue and Playboy. So I had a name as a writer. So I actually had agents coming to me and saying, do you want to write a book? If so, I'd like to represent you, which I get is a very enviable position, but I'd also worked for 10 years. It was the standard trajectory for somebody like me who started off in magazines. Were you a Um, columnist or a reporter? mm -hmm. Talk to us about that kind of work that you did. I started doing celebrity profiles. I worked for People and Us Weekly, but then I worked up to Premier Magazine, which was this very respected magazine no longer with us. And I was doing celebrity profiles. I would just sit down with a celebrity. I did a lot of cover stories for Cosmo and they were very easy. It was very easy, good work because you would sit down with a celebrity, oftentimes a delightful one. Jessica Alba, I did two cover stories on her and I have just, what a queen. So you spend a she's del- going public soon, so. 
she's just uh, bowed down. So you sit with Jessica Alba for an hour, have a delightful time. And then it was great money for freelancing. So they would pay you about $5,000 be doing the Cosmo cover story. They would even pay for the transcription. And it was a good deal. I then really lucked into a situation where I started to do first person girl. She did the sex column for New York magazine. They don't have a sex column anymore, but she used to do it. And she came to me and she said, do you want to do this story for Playboy where we trade dating lives for a week? So I did that. Turns out I knew how to write first person and that launched this whole career. I was in Playboy, you know, they shot us. It was made into a reality show pilot. It was this big deal. So then that was really my beat was doing first person dating stuff. So I had a column for a magazine called Razor, but I wrote for Maxim and stuff and all the lad mags. But I also did do reported stories for details. I did stories on addiction. I did a story about like sex work in Hollywood, different things. And so you had agents calling you due to your notoriety as a journalist, which makes sense. How did you make the choice of who you were going to go with? I actually had a crazy situation because I was finishing Party Girl. I had no agent. And I'm talking, I was in my last week of writing it. An agent reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm a huge fan of your work. If you ever have a book, let me know. And I said, that's so funny. I'm putting the finishing touches on my book right now. And he said, send it to me. Send it to him. He goes, I love this. And in fact, I'm going to be in L.A., Next week, I can't remember because this was a long time ago, the actual timing, really soon. So he said, let's have lunch and sign. And I said, fantastic. The next day, I get an email from this woman named Pilar Queen, who emails me and says, I've been reading your column all morning. I am laughing out loud. You need to do a book. And I go, not only have I just finished my book, I'm about to go sign with an agent. And she said, call me right now. So I call her and she says, do me a favor. Do not sign with this guy today. I'll cancel the rest of my day. I'll read your book. If I don't like your book, you got no problem. If I like your book, you need to give me a shot. So I went and I sat with this guy and he was really surprised. I expected him not to really care. And he's like, what do you mean you're not signing with me? And I said, well, I just need a day. And he's like, well, I've already shown your book to people, which was, he shouldn't have done that. But it was all awkward and strange. And then she said, I love this. I can sell this. Book a ticket to come to New York next week because we're going to create a situation where there's a bidding war. She was so savvy and smart. So what she did is she sent it out and she said, Anna is coming to New York for two days. So you have to read it now. She's coming next week. I didn't have any plans to come. And so she sent it to six people and we got two offers. And one was Regan Books, which was Judith Regan was the queen of publishing. She was my top choice. So we went with that one. Amazing. So you won. You won this little race. Yes. And what would have happened if you had signed the other deal? I know. I mean, it's funny though. My friend and I were talking yesterday about those things that happen oftentimes when you're, say, in your 30s that are gifts from the heavens. And you don't get that you're getting your lucky break. You think, I've deserved this. Well, obviously, I'm going to sell my book to do three again. Obviously, my first story for Playboy is going to get optioned made into a reality show pilot. It's always going to be like this. And it's not, I mean, maybe for some people it is, but it's really interesting. And it's a real awakening because I didn't get that I was so, I was so lucky. 
And I did not get that. And it's really what you do from there. Do you know what you needed to do from there to ride the wave? As it turns out, I did not. I always say it's like I had such the Cinderella story with selling and then I had the wicked stepmother story with what happened because Judith Regan was fired in the biggest publishing scandal ever. So they talk about in publishing how editors are always leaving and going to new houses and you get orphaned. And I always say I got orphaned and the orphanage was burned to the ground. There was just no company. There was no anything. And the key thing was there was nobody to get the book in bookstores. And back in 2007, and that mattered a lot. How big an order Barnes and Nobles and Borders and those stores put determined the success of your book. And I was like dead on arrival and I didn't know that. So how did you know, it the, eventually get out then? They created an imprint under Harper for the books from Judith Regan's company that they decided to salvage, which was just a small fraction. So I was lucky. Lucky. And again. I was. Yeah. Except it's like, it, well, Chelsea Handler, who wasn't really Chelsea Handler then, she was another book. And she had her agent go to another division, like an existing division where she got real help. Whereas we didn't know this was uncharted territory. My agent hadn't seen this before. And so it was released. There was just no support behind it. So I did what I do with my books now, which is everything. I actually had hired a very expensive publicist who did a good job. I'm a nightmare to be a publicist for because I have so many media contacts that I'm going to do a better job than they are. And I'm going to resent them and be their most difficult client. So I try to do favors for publicists now and not hire them. (laughs) That's so funny. So was Party Girl your first book? Yes. Okay. So at some point you found that traditional publishing wasn't necessarily for everyone and that professional publishing and people refer to it as different things, self-publishing, professional publishing. What do you refer to it as? I like hybrid. Hybrid. All right. Sounds better than self. Correct. So when did that become of interest to you versus traditional publishing? Very late in the scheme of things. I wish I had understood around 2010, 2013, when it really took uh, hold. I did not. I was the ultimate snob. People would go, oh, I published a book. And I'd be like, self or real? I really was the worst. And I had a lot of ego and pride around the fact that I was with Harper and then Simon & Schuster. And I had pride even when my book deals dwindled to $2,000. And 2000 um, was your advance? Yeah. So my first advance was 50. My second, I always talk numbers, I'm fine with it, 25. And then I went, then it stayed around there. And then I went up for Falling for Me. I switched to William Morris and my book Falling for Me, I think I got about 60. And then I got two. And I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. And I really felt that traditional publishing killed my love for writing because it really did. Was it the editors or was it the reality of what would happen once the book left the nest? There was no editing. So they don't really edit. My experience, I happen to have an editor that the big sort of joke about him was that when he was fired, because he left Regan and got 
to another in print. But when he was fired, ultimately, they open his desk and there's all these untouched manuscripts. So I have no evidence that he read three of my books, let alone touched them. I'm a very clean writer. I mean, I say not to be self-aggrandizing, but I don't need a lot of editing. I surely would have benefited. I was dating through one of my books. I was dating a very big writer who had the same editor. And he showed me what that editor did to his book. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, he does all of that? I had no idea he was even supposed to. So really, I just got copy editing. And like I said, I didn't really know any difference, but it's just heartbreaking because, and I just read, there's this incredible thread going around right now, which I'll send you the link about traditional publishing, about what the heartbreak is, where it's just, you just watch the publisher not pick your book to get behind. So not only are you feeling sad about the state of your book, but you're watching your friend get all their attention and all their effort. And literally, I sort of compare it to, it's like a movie where you're the writer, the director, the producer, the star. People gave you money. You had investors and then the movie comes out and they've changed their numbers. Like you can't even find them. And you're like, but you gave me money. I thought we were in this together. And it's a movie nobody cares about. So So they're just really focusing on another set of writers that they feel is going to give them a better return. So they've invested in you, but it's no longer a viable investment in their mind. Yes. And publishing, it's one of the only industries where they know they're going to lose money on 90% of the deals. Well, venture capital is, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that is, but like in venture capital, you still get the money. Like you're still getting what they're giving you. With this, you are getting the money, but you're not getting the reason you went with them. And it turns out they're not evil. They just are business people. Right. So I am really looking forward to getting into Make Your Mess Your Memoir. It's part memoir and part how-to. I loved it. I read it. Well, actually, I didn't read it. I listened to you read it to me, which I loved because I got to know you a little bit through how you voiced it. But I think you coined the term bizwar. Yes. Tell us the top three things that you can do with this type of book and everything else that you want this audience to know. Well, I will say that the reason, I know I'm not going right into the top three, but the reason that I wanted to do this is that I find business books can be a little bit pedantic at times and memoirs are wonderful, but I'm often left with like, what do I do now? And so I wanted to do something where you could have the benefits of both. So my goal was to share my journey and then show people how to do it themselves. And so with a bizoire, what I did for 75% of the book is just my story. And then the second, the last, Jesus, last quarter, math is not my strong suit. I share how, and then I have that section that's sort of like TLDR, like too long, didn't read, where I break down in a chart what the takeaways are and what you can do. What's interesting is my company is now doing, we're sort of like, oh, this is their bizwar. We're doing that for clients, but not in the same way. We're weaving their business lessons more into their story, which is what you're doing in your book. Yes. I actually found you through an EO member 
in our EO authors and speakers group. And I had said, hey, I have a question. I have this memoir, but it really is fully intertwined with my business. And I don't know what to do. Is it a memoir? Is it a business book? Is it a business memoir? And someone was like, oh, I heard this gal on a podcast and she had coined the term bizwar. I think you should talk to her. So that's how I found you. Right. So what has been the reaction to make your mess, your memoir? And a lot of the people listening to this may not understand what a marketing funnel is and talk to us about how much of a funnel this book is to lead clients to you. Yes, the response has been really wonderful. And I will say, as a side note, that comes from me, which is to say the response to your book, you listener, you Natasha, you know this, is going to come from you. I had miserable book releases because I was just focused on all the things, the reviews I didn't get, the TV shows I didn't get. And what I have done in these books that I've released myself, because I've now done two, is I am just going to embrace it all, let go of what I don't get and appreciate what I do. And all that does is bring in more abundance. So it's almost like if it hadn't gotten a great response, I might not have even noticed, but it was wonderful. I got this very lucky break, which is I got on Good Morning America, which just was not just a game changer for the book, but a game changer for my company. Because I could prove that with doing the book yourself or doing it with my company is more effective than doing it with a big five publisher because I couldn't get on Good Morning America with any of my traditionally published books. So the idea with a book is that most of us are not going to make money from book sales. And I don't mean not make significant money. I mean, not make money. And so you, if you want to make money from a book, should have a plan for how you're going to do that. So your book should be about your secret power. And it should be the thing that people always ask you how to do. The thing that you wish you didn't have to repeat yourself all the time talking about it. And the goal is that you are showing people who cannot afford your services how to do this on your own. And you are showing the people who can afford your services that they don't have to do it on their own. So I think it's important and doesn't infringe on what your creativity to have that in mind the entire time you're writing. What I did with Make Your Master Memoir is I pictured a couple that I know Genius Network members, this lovely couple, sometimes in my head, they're my replacement parents. And they had talked about hiring me to do a book. They work together. And I thought about them all the time when I was writing the book. And I don't think they read the book, but I will tell you that dozens of people just like them have hired my company as a result because it's like, you know, that's amazing. Let's just stop right there because I want people to understand this to have a book. It can raise your authority and get you business, even if they don't even open it and read a thing. And so this is really important that I think people need to understand. In my core business, we have this show called Entire Variety. Yes, our clients attend it. Do hundreds of people attend it? No, but it's not necessary. People are booking us for some of the talent on the show just because they know it exists And I just think that's really important. But if people do open up the book, let's talk about what can happen then, but also what it can lead to. So it led to, 
it's a funnel into your business. Is it getting you speaking engagements? Well, it's a weird year for that. It came out July 15th of 2020, arguably the absolute worst time for a book to come out, which was another experiment I wanted to do because my theory is that all this stuff, the traditional publishers sling around about this is the best release date is nonsense. There are advantages and disadvantages to all dates for this. So no, my speaking is kicking up now, but, and I did some virtual events, but that was not my goal. I was very clear about my goal was to get clients from that book. And it was my eighth book. And it was the first time that I went with an intention of doing that. So that I think is key. Would you say that this book has given you more joy than any of the other past books? Yes. Hardy Girl gave me so much joy to write it. I can't even tell you. And it still lives on. We might as well just talk about how it's living on. So it's living on. Yes. So Um, what is happening with that book right now? Well, I will never let it die, Maybe. by the way. Like, what's uh, possibly happening? Well, the movie rights have been optioned over and over since it first came out. And different possibilities, some of them exciting. But right now, this is, I wrote the script over the pandemic. And it is... And can I, I ask a question about script writing? As yeah. an author and as a columnist and a reporter... How easy is it to move to writing a script? I think it's a whole nother beast, is it? Yes. And I'll tell you the truth. I was terrible at it. I tried to be a screenwriter. I wrote TV specs. I did all the things back in the 90s and I wasn't any good at it. And what it turned out, so my boyfriend is a screenwriter who is a genius at structure. And in fact, one of the Melanie Griffith options, the rights back in whatever, when it first came out, and she said, I want you to write the script. And I met with her and Antonio Banderas, and they were like, you're going to write the script. And I tried, and it was terrible because I was just taking my book and writing a script. I didn't know. And Jim looked at it. He'd read the book, and he's like, no, here's the structure. Start with this. Go to this. Do that. And it's really a math problem, and I can't do math. So Once he told me the structure, it just flowed. And the script is very different because the book takes place in the 90s and this is 2020, you know, or 2021. It is like in the book, she becomes a magazine columnist. Who cares about that? Today, she becomes the biggest podcaster. So it's been updated. And I was shocked to discover that the script was good because I had many experiences writing scripts that were not. So I've decided I'm going to manifest just the, the way, and I don't mean to sidetrack, but in this clubhouse conversation that you and I had recently, I was so blown away. I don't think you know like how powerful the statement you said was. We were talking about just your book and you just basically said, I'm doing this book. I'm moving to the next phase of my life. It is going to launch my course. It is going to, and it was just said so beautifully and with so much conviction. And I know because you've accomplished a lot, like, you know, you have the power to do that. I really loved it because we talked about it, but I'd never heard you articulate it like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing with the script. It's going to get made right now. Jeff Garland, who's on Curb Your Enthusiasm, is attached as a producer and as talent to play one of the parts. And every week there's like somebody, I did find somebody, there is somebody who's interested in making it a producer and can raise money, but it's a very low budget. So I'm not sure there's a lot of locations. And so it doesn't lend itself to a low budget. 
movie, but I'm just going to see where it goes. I believe that your book probably had to wait this long for you to catch up to it, for you to have the full experience, a great Mm. screenplay, the right team, the right time. And it's just going to be amazing. Whereas if you had, maybe if Melanie Griffith, maybe there would be changes. It didn't happen for a reason. So yeah, this feels like the right time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I remember it just broke my heart that Party Girl didn't do better. And then I realized I was like, well, who knows? Like maybe it would have become this huge success and I would have been a total asshole. Who knows? And and I would have done to your life. I know several people who had huge hit books out of the gate. Everybody was jealous of them. They got all the things and they are constantly and never able to dig themselves out of my greatest successes behind me. And it's not great. That is not fun. Okay. So we're going to go back into your business. And one of the things I'd like to know is right now, today, what is one of the biggest challenges that you're working on or working through (laughs) in your business? The biggest challenge is extricating myself from the day to day. I have a team, an amazing team, but I have set up a business that involves me emotionally and literally, where because I'm the face, basically clients expect to deal with me all the time. And it's very challenging. And I have definitely hit a breaking point lately because I do all the boundaries and I say I can't be involved. And they really say, they get angry or they just say no, or they just ignore the boundary. And so I'm working so hard right now to change that. I was just like, is there a way to get me not to be the person that signs the contracts? That would be the dream. I don't think so. So Uh, there is, by the way, but. um. Oh my God, for our (laughs) next call. Oh, please. Okay. Wow. So this is not a challenge specific to you. Yeah. Right. I think one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs and business people have in general is something different. And that is their people operations, the people hiring, firing, keeping them engaged, keeping them happy culture. But the other thing is delegation and removing yourself from the center of the business. And so you're working in your business and not on it. It sounds like your goal might be to move toward working on the business. Absolutely. It's what makes me happy too. It's what I enjoy. And I'm in this situation right now where every time a client signs, I'm like, oh God, I signed someone this morning and I don't want to have that response to something that I can't believe a year and a half ago I would have killed for. It will happen. Just like everything, it has its own timing, right? Yeah. You're probably too new of a business to let go of the reins completely. And it doesn't hurt or it doesn't help that you're so fun to talk to and so Mm. smart and exciting to be on a call or in a room with. So maybe you should just make yourself not so desirable. (laughs) My team is like that though. They are just like the highlight of the week is our team meeting because they're just so delightful. It's funny because we were talking last week about ENFJ. What are those called? The Myers-Briggs tests. We were all the same thing. That is a thing. So as you scale and grow your business, I won't be able to talk about Myers-Briggs specifically, but if you take a DISC 
assessment. I'm a high D. I'm a driver. And I won't be able to walk you through the other, the I and the S and the C very well. But when you have a team that's growing and a business that's growing, you have to diversify. I know. So this is working now and I love it. Let's just embrace it for the moment. And then the next question I have for you, and you can't answer with the same answer. What is a strategy that you're focusing on to scale and grow your business this year? Well, there's two. I would love to make my online business work. So I focus a lot on that, on the actual funnel. And that's attracting yeah. people. Let's talk about what a funnel is and yeah. people don't know. It's attracting people to my newsletter list. So I have this cheat sheet, which is the 20 ways to launch a bestselling book, which you have read. It's great. I have had a lot of lead magnets that are not great. So I think I may have figured this out. So that's the lead magnet. You sign up and you get offered a $5 product, which is my book, write and launch your book in a year, which is 52 chapters and they're very short and each one has a tip and then a follow-up. So what you should do for that tip. And it's very manageable. It's like, you can do this tip in a week. And the goal is it's not a book about writing. It is a book. It is The thing is, and lots of people I talk to write their books and they don't publish them. So that will not be your problem, Natasha. But so this is to get you ready to both write and publish your book in a year. And then you get offered my course, which is Launch Your Book, which I'm thinking of retitling it, Overnight Bestseller. Is that way better? Way I better. mean, that's really exciting but it feels like there's a guarantee there. So you just have to work out. There's got to be fine print that doesn't fine print, right? That doesn't yeah. promise because you can't control the content. I know, but if you follow the launch strategy, I mean, you will be a bestseller on, but you know, everything can change. You know what? That's right. I was joking with someone about, okay, do I need to be a USA Today or a New York Times bestselling author? Do I need to be an Amazon bestselling author? There are a lot of authors out there, especially in the entrepreneurship world, where they're like, I'm a bestselling author. And you know what? We just all believe them. I could become the bestselling author of my neighborhood and still say that might even mean nobody else has published a book in my neighborhood, right? right? So it's wordsmithing. It is. And by the way, I have somebody who worked for me who left, who started a competing business, who is not a New York Times bestselling author, who now claims on Instagram she is. So you don't even have to be telling the truth, apparently. It would be um, pretty hard to really prove that, I guess. Who's going to chat? I was going to comment and go, which one? <laughs> Wait, one but, more thing I have to say out loud, which is pretty funny. And I think I told you this. I have a friend in New York who before he wrote his book, and it was a dummies book about mortgages or something. He had tattooed on his chest in the reverse so that when he looked at the mirror, it says New York Times bestselling author. I think that was his way of manifesting it. Did and it I, work? I, you know what? I need to go back and check. Well, I'll tell you what, it's still on there. So he has plenty of time to fulfill that destiny. I mean, I'll tell you something very dark that occurs to me because I'm sober and in recovery. And there's this joke, which isn't very funny, I guess, if you're not in the program, that anybody who tattoos their sobriety date on their body is going to go out because you got to be one day at a time. Like you can't do that. So I'm assuming uh, you don't have a tattoo of your... 
I do not have okay. a tattoo. Of Just checking. My yeah, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot to answer to. Okay, so I think you said you had two things. So two strategies. One is the digital marketing the funnel. funnel. And the other one, okay, so my challenge, and you and I have talked about this, is that we are such a high-touch business and we are a boutique. And I do not want to become a book factory that releases hundreds of books a year. So how do I scale? So I think I can grow sideways, which is to say, if we are in the authority building business, which is what we are, how else can we help people build authority? Podcasts social media, publicity, speaking, all of these things, podcast being the most obvious because I am being interviewed from my sound booth. My bottom floor in my house is a sound booth. So I started to offer that to clients and I actually have a great way to take a book and make it into a podcast, but nobody's been, I haven't made a real effort. So that's one way to scale And then the other way is to offer a more concierge level where you basically get somebody on my team at your proverbial beck and call doing all the things. Both have challenges, so I haven't implemented them. Yeah, it's a great starting point. And I love hearing that. That's very exciting. And I do see other businesses that are similar to yours doing that. It will mean bringing on more talent, whether it's freelance, 1099 or employee, but you can figure that out in the future. I love it. I love it. Anna laid it all out for us. She didn't hold back and she taught us a lot. For more information about Anna, her books and her company, Launchpad Publishing, go to the show notes where you're listening to this show. For more information about me, go to my website, natashamiller.co. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.